Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, coming to you from our studio in Johannesburg. I'm Michael Apple. It's Wednesday, the 2nd of February. With me this hour are my colleagues, Justin Rowe Roberts and Nadia Swat from the Mother City. They've got the latest in your news headlines and a look at the markets a little later. On today's program, our partner, the Financial Times, is more on protests in Myanmar, where businesses defied that government's instruction not to participate in anti-military action since the coup d'etat there last year. Then more on Google's parent company, Alphabet, announcing a 20-for-1 stock split. And then plant-based meats. Is there a drop-off in demand? There's something that went on in January. I'd never heard of it. And you've got to say this very carefully, Veganuary. That was something new to me. Also, also coming up, Linda von Tilburg interviews Mossel Bay local Peter Stienekamp about his dream to create the Novel Academy, a school with no age structure. It supports self-teaching, not relying on teachers. And he wants to change an education system he says is simply not fit for purpose. Moving on to another interview Linda did, this time with the, Eura- with the Eurasia Group's African director, Sri Pillay, about President Cyril Ramaphosa's position as leader of the ruling party. Pillay says the run-up to the conference could be marred by violence, and he predicts challenges by younger ANC members for positions in the party. Justin Rowe Roberts, a chat with David Bacher from Korean Capital today. What did your discussion focus on? Always good to catch up with David Bacher from Korean. Korean Capital publishes an informative summary of asset class and fund performance reviews. I think it's suitable for any level of investor. We went through the month of January, Mike. January was a turbulent month for global markets. South Africa, not too badly affected, however. South Africa has been this investment destination that's been dog-like. The investment returns haven't been good for five to ten years. David Bacher thinks that's changing. The reason that it's changing is there's this value bias on the JSC. And now there's this big rotation from growth into value, and there are many beneficiaries, the commodity companies, the retailers, the banks, David Bacher thinks South Africa as an investment destination is a good place to put your money for the next five years or so. And Mike, you got your hands on the second part of the Zondo report today, state capture report. Is your brain exploding? Yeah, I tried my best last night, but um, the presidency's website had crashed. So I managed to to finally get it downloaded, all 630 pages of it. This follows on the 870-something pages of the first report. And i got to say, I've only gotten through like 30, 40 pages of the first report. And it reads like a crime novel. It's not easy reading, though. But I've managed to make a start. Look, there's nothing here we didn't know. But they're putting, they're putting, finger, uh, they're putting figures to things like... Here's a figure that's a little bit eye-watering. The commission quotes, um, Transnet is the primary site of state capture and estimates that 41.2 billion rand was irregularly awarded and given to the Guptas. And it was like known as the Guptas 
criminal enterprise, money laundering enterprise. And the prime architects and implementers of state capture at Transnet are named as Brian Molefe, Anoj Singh, and Siabonga Gama. I'm sure Mr. Malusi Gigaba, who was public enterprises minister around that time's name, also creeps up. Um, and it is both Molefe and Singh who would be seconded to ESCOM from Transnet, where the Guptas continued getting a, a steady stream of taxpayers' money. So this was a very nice business model um, that the report notes that they sort of started perfecting a Transnet and then moved over into ESCOM um, to fully implement something that was very lucrative for, for them and their friends. But, of course, we don't have the, the ESCOM reporters yet. So there are only certain decision makers right at the top who they, they centralized so much power in themselves and they shielded themselves from so much scrutiny from the governance and the audit departments. I was reading with absolute horror how somebody like uh, Brian Malefe, who is the, the group chief, chief executive, the, the uh, delegation of authority that he had at the stroke of a pen was to be able to sign off on a billion rand tender and it could be done confidentially. There was a confidential confinement power um, and that's how he was able to bring on people like McKinsey and Regiments and Trillion. You could literally, in a confidential way, hide it from the rest of your organization up to a billion rand. Those are how some of the tenders were brought in. So you say, how is this possible? Did people not speak out? People didn't know. And if they did know, they were either um, too terrified to speak out or they were bullied out of their state-owned entities. There were lots of uh, stories of that happening. If you did try to speak up, you, you knew what was going to happen to you. It's enough hearing from my voice. Here's Nadia Swat with your news headlines. Rightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. So some more state capture headlines. The Guptas and their associate Salim Essa used a supplier VR laser services as a vehicle to capture state defense technology company Denal, the State Capture Commission has found. The commission, led by Acting Chief Justice Raymond Zondo, on Tuesday handed to the presidency the second part of its report. It is split into two volumes and focuses on capture of Transnet and Denal. The entry into VR laser by the Guptas and Mr. Essa was affected with the intention of using it as a vehicle with which to capture Denal, the report read. Notably, the report makes findings against former public enterprise ministers Malusi Gigaba and Lynn Brown, saying they aided and abetted the state capture process as willing participants with close ties to the Guptas. Acting Chief Justice Raymond Zondo says that South Africa's government has proven incapable of appointing CEOs and other officials to public enterprises and recommends that a board be set up to choose the right people for the job. Zondo's comments were contained in the latest state capture report. He describes key SOEs as a dismal failure, with many rooted in corruption, collapsing and needing to be bailed out by the National Treasury. 
These failures, however, start as soon as government officials and ministers get involved with appointing executives. SAA, Transnet and ESCOM were among the SOEs cited at which dodgy appointments had been made by the executive. And trade union Solidarity on Wednesday served court papers seeking the annulment of the COVID-19 state of disaster, saying SA needs to return to a functioning democracy. The union lodged its papers at the High Court in Pretoria against Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs Minister Nkosazana Dlamini-Zuma and the National Coronavirus Command Council. By its own relaxation of regulations, the government has already announced that the disaster is a thing of the past. The Disaster Management Act is intended to create a drastic yet short-term situation to allow the government to move quickly, said Solidarity CEO Dirk Herman. It is absurd that the governing party wants to keep us in a semi-autocracy. Justin, what's happening in the markets? JSE All Share Index is firm at 75,500. In the price action, it's all about the miners. Tungela pushing through the 100 Rand level, more than 6% up on the day, along with its big brother, Xara Resources, supported by a stronger coal price. And on the downside, not much to speak about. Retailers Steinoff and Pepcorp, both slightly low on the day. In the currency markets, the Rand was stronger against all the major currencies to 15 Rand 23 to the dollar. 20.54 to the pound and 17.15 to the euro. Gold is up at $1,805 an ounce. Kruger Rand will put you back approximately 29,000 Rand. Brent crude is stronger, trading at $90.50 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back around 590,000 Rand. In the financial news, Google parent Alphabet posted another strong quarter of strong sales growth, capping a year when profit nearly doubled despite mounting regulatory pressure that threatens the search giant's future. The company's dominance in online search, video, and internet ad sales made it one of last year's leading beneficiaries of an upswing in digital advertising. Last year, small and large businesses alike flooded into the ad market in a bid to win customers who spent early parts of the pandemic in their homes. This daily market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Wednesday, February 2nd, and this is your FT News Briefing. Businesses in Myanmar defied government warnings and joined a nationwide protest yesterday. Google served up a strong fourth quarter with a stock split on the side. Plus, plant-based meats were all the rage. But last year, the novelty wore off. Personally, I think it's really down to taste. I've tried a lot of things out in the market, and I've been disappointed. The FT's Emiko Terrazono explains why sales have gone from red hot to room temp. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Google's parent company Alphabet beat Wall Street's revenue expectations by a cool $3 billion last quarter. Alphabet reported earnings yesterday. It saw a bit of a slowdown from quarter to quarter, but still posted a 32% increase in revenue over the year. But the big news is that Alphabet announced a 20-for-1 stock split, so every share will turn into 20 shares. But the price will reflect the split so that the company's market capitalization will stay the same. 
It is only Alphabet's second stock split in the 18 years since the company went public. The move still needs to be approved at Alphabet's annual meeting in July. The company's share price shot up more than 8% in after-hours trading on the announcement. Yesterday was the one-year anniversary of the military coup in Myanmar. Despite threats from the junta, businesses shut down and marked the day by joining a nationwide silent strike. Here's the FT's John Reed. Some, you know, smaller businesses did keep their doors open and put out little symbolic displays, maybe with one item. These were sort of smaller traders because they were worried about repercussions from the regime. But the fact that so many people took part shows you that, how do I put it? I mean, you know, fear has evaporated, diminished, um, and or people see strength in numbers when a mass protest like this is held. John says the military coup, along with the pandemic, have been devastating for Myanmar. The World Bank estimates the country's economy is 30% smaller than it would have been otherwise. John said output shrank because of all the protests and general unrest and many people going underground. You could call it a nationwide insurrection against the military that's gaining in, in violence and force. And that means an, you know, an even bigger challenge for the international community if they hope to ever mediate this horrible conflict. The battle lines are very starkly drawn between the military and you know, the people of Myanmar who see the military as terrorists and uh, you know, not a force to be negotiated with. DFT's John Reed covers Myanmar from his post in Bangkok. Sales of alternative meat products have sizzled over the past few years, especially since the successful 2019 IPO of the company Beyond Meat. The following year, industry sales grew nearly 50%. I think it really caught on with the consumer because of climate change and environment and people wanting to do the right thing. But our commodities correspondent, Emiko Terrazono, reports that sales of plant-based meat products have flattened. I've got her on the line to talk more about the industry's future. Hi, Emiko. Hi. So, Emiko, what was the appeal of these plant-based meats? I remember there being such a, a big boom in this industry during the early stages of the pandemic. Yeah, I think one of the big things with plant-based meats is that, you know, it's not coming out of a slaughtering house. But also, at the right in the, at the start of the pandemic, when things started shutting down, people rushed to buy things like oat milk and plant-based meat. And that was really interesting at the time and surprising as well. I guess they thought, people thought, what can we buy that we can put in our freezers or we can put in our, on our shelves, we can put it in our pantries, and it will, you know, it will keep. But Emiko, after so much growth, U.S. sales fell, U.K. sales fell, although there you know, was a bit of a comeback. You know, why do you think this is happening? Well, personally, I think it's really down to taste. I've tried a lot of things out in the market and I've been disappointed. I've tried them, but I've, nothing's been so compelling for me to go back and say, yeah, I'll buy that again. Um, talking to analysts for our story, um, some people said, well, you know, if you stock up on these things and then you have a chance to read the label really carefully, you'll see these names, ingredients and names that you've never heard of. You know, things like methyl, methyl cellulose. What the hell is that? Um, so I think that put a lot of people off as well. So how are companies responding to the slowdown in sales? 
I think this is where the larger companies step in, those with the real R&D muscle, the, the, the amount of investment that's going in. A colleague, Judith Evans, and I sat in on a tasting with Nestle, who had an array of things to let us taste. I mean, okay, it was very experimental still. Things like smoked salmon made out of algae or hams made out of plant-based peas. But it was remarkable, the stuff they were doing. So, Amika, are the big corporations like Nestle becoming big players in the industry now, or is it still the Beyond Meat types? It started off with the small startups, and Beyond Meat started off as a, a very small outfit, as did Impossible. I think the big guys saw that this was a very attractive marketing proposition. So they are now, most of them are in it, the big names, Nestle, Unilever, who we spoke to for our piece, Tyson, the meat company, it's now calling itself a protein company. I think, you know, they're smart enough to see, well, you know, you've got to diversify at a, at a time when population growth is happening, there's not going to be enough land or um, or resources to feed everyone. But at the same time, you've got still got money going in and there are a lot of startups still coming in. So it's a really lively, active area. It'll be interesting to see what this sort of sales pause or growth, sales growth pause actually, you know, results in. Uh, will we see bankruptcies? Will we see M&A? That is what some of the analysts are expecting. So long term, Emiko, do companies still think that plant-based meat alternatives will become mainstream or at least become a profitable enough product that they are going to keep investing in it? I think they do. I think down the line, I don't know what that what kind of time scale they're thinking of. But, you know, you've got this at this tasting we went to, you had the CEO come out and say for every animal protein, and I think also that includes fish, there will be a plant alternative. And these big companies, they're so bureaucratic, they're not going to put the CEO in front of journalists to say that. So I, I think they are putting a lot on the line. How soon that will happen, it's anyone's guess. Emiko Terrazono is the FT's commodities correspondent. Thanks, Emiko. Thanks. All right, before we go, more food news, this time on the cake front. Colin and Cuthbert have reached a truce. Colin is actually a chocolate cake shaped like a caterpillar that, I've been told passionately on Twitter, has grazed many British children's birthday parties. Marks and Spencer makes it, but the cake war began when the discount food retailer Aldi came out with a mighty similar chocolate caterpillar cake named Cuthbert. Marks and Spencer launched legal action, and just yesterday, the two parties agreed to a secret peace treaty. Marks and Spencer would only say that it felt Colin was now protected. But here's the icing on the cake. All these response. Cuthbert is free and looking forward to seeing all his fans again very soon. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. David Bacher, Corian Capital's Chief Investment Officer. Corian Capital publishes an informative summary of asset class and fund performance returns every month, which is suitable for any level of investor. The report can be found on Corian Capital's website or biznews.com. David, January was a roller coaster. 
Something that really stood out for me in the report was the disparity between returns in South Africa. I'm talking South African bonds and equities versus its global peers. So much for South Africa being the dog when it comes to an investment destination. Absolutely, Justin. Uh, I mean, looking back at January, the buzzwords were definitely inflation and rising interest rates, and that spooked the market. Uh, and despite a very strong last two days, global markets ended down materially, down 8%. Now, looking at the South African equity market uh, in an environment as tricky as that, if you look at the MSCI South African index, we were actually up, up 6% in dollar terms. And that's a phenomenal uh, result. And as you know, at Corian, um, we've had a positive view on South Africa. We've had a positive view on South African equities. And fortunately for, for our clients, you know, this proved to be the, the, the right move. And, you know, we went against many of our peers. Um, uh, seldom picked up a newspaper or read a, on social media a negative article about South Africa. And we thought that was really not looking at valuations. And we thought the valuations in South Africa were compelling. So we went a bit against the grain and, and that paid, paid dividends. David, global equities, not one fund in the green in January. The best performing fund down just less than 1% with the worst performing fund 21% lower for the month. I remember one of our first conversations early last year, we were talking about the team at Anchor and Signia who were bullish on tech and its prospects. Those funds were raved about for months and now they're everyone's enemies. Being in the investment space, is very tough, is it not, David? It certainly is. Mr. Market can humble you very, very quickly. So you know, you've got to be careful what you say. Investing is a long-term game. Uh, you could look uh, cleverer than you actually are, and you could look you know, stupider than you really are. Um, so you really have to think about long-term numbers in investing. And just from our side at Corian, you know, we try and stay away from funds that we feel is more about the current story than about current valuations. Um, and it's for this reason we had little exposure to tech-centric funds. We are underweight that part of the market. Um, and, you know, we saw things a bit differently. Um, uh, you know, the, to some extent, and uh, maybe I'm being a bit critical, uh, uh, you, you seem to have a lot of market commentators, you know, selling what is the easy sell, the, the funds that are, performing well recently, the funds that are topical, the funds, you know, you, you hear all the time, SA is uninvestable, uh, get your money out the country, it's all about the fourth industrial revolution, it's a new world. But, you know, at the end of the day, there's a price for the asset you pay and you've got to take that into account. This growth to value rotation is in full force. What are the team at Corian saying? Is this just the beginning? We certainly think it's just the beginning. It's been a, a massive snapback. If you look at uh, global equities, uh, MSCR value index was down about 1%, while, val while the growth index was down 9 So that's a, a 8% dispersion, which is, which is significant. But we still think that there's a long way to play. Um, there's two main reasons for that. Um, one is rising interest rates tend to favor value stocks um, and the reason for that is a lot of investors value stocks using net present value of future earnings and especially high growth stocks that have um, 
have expected earnings in the distant future. This means they're discounting earnings back at a much higher discount rate, which, which you know, when your discount rate goes up, your net present value goes down. So rising interest rates is a headwind for growth stocks. We think it's very favorable for value stocks. And the second point, when we look at our graphs and our, our analysis at Corian, just terms of valuations where value stocks have been trading relative to their history and growth stocks and momentum stocks relative to their history, you have two different extremes. Value, the value of value, so to speak, is still compelling and not so much for the growth part of the market. David, I spoke to John Picard, 91's value fund manager yesterday. It was the first time that we chatted. Super interesting investment philosophy. He tries not to overcomplicate matters and focuses on mean reversion, what you've been saying, choosing the out-of-favor stocks, forgetting the story and focusing on valuation. 17.2% per annum for 20-plus years. Are there better managers with a track record like that in South Africa? We admire John a lot. I've been analyzing funds and, and, and our first meeting with John Descartes, I haven't seen him recently, was probably about 23 years ago. And why we admire him is that, you know, he, he sticks to his knitting. Um, investing is not a fast fashion. It's not about constantly chopping and changing. It's about sticking to your process and making sure that you follow that philosophy that you think will provide your clients with the best return over the very long term. And that is something that I think John Bicard is a flag bearer. You know, he, he doesn't really think one year, three year out. He thinks five, ten years out. Um, he, he expects his clients to understand what they're getting into. He sticks to his principles. And yes, there's been a lot of volatility. And at Corian, we probably have a different risk appetite. Well, our clients have a different risk appetite uh, than him. But, you know, uh, sticking to your philosophy uh, uh, and focusing on the long term is something that we share in common. Uh, and he, he, over that long period of time, if you started in a fund and you hold your course, you will have significantly outperformed. Which other managers or funds stood out for you at the moment? Well, it was great to see boutique and smaller managers doing so well. Um, if you look at the one year and the, and the one month uh, numbers, you could see a lot of the smaller uh, managers at the top of the rankings. And, you know, at Corian, we love to invest in small managers. We think the South African market is, is relatively small. It's relatively liquid. And the ability to go down the market cap size into mid caps and small caps, I think if you're nimble and, and you can move fast, you can take advantage of those situations, which has certainly been where you needed to be, uh, you know, mid and small caps over the last year. So across the board, it was nice to see boutique managers. If I have to think of the big house that really caught my eye, is actually MNG. Uh, their equity fund is a, a significant size fund in, in South Africa. Their equity fund outperformed peers by about 10% over the last year for a, a house that size. Um, that, that's a really commendable performance by them. So I'll hat tip to them. What asset classes are the team at Corian thinking will outperform going forward into the rest of 2022? Well, our clients really expect us to think about returns in the context of risk. Um, so in this context, uh, we'll have to say we're extremely bullish on a more conservative asset class being South African domestic bonds. Um, if you consider that there's been many years since South African inflation 
is actually lower than US inflation. Yet our spread between our 10-year bond and the American 10-year bond has actually widened considerably. To us, that, that doesn't make sense. Um, and I actually read something from a, a gentleman called Nolan Wagenauer, who's, who's actually at Anchor. He's the head of their interest team. And he wrote, you know, imagine a value stock with a dividend of 9.3. That is the all bond index. And we think that we concur with that view. David, we get all these American commentators. They say the days of the 60-40 portfolio are gone. Do you disagree within the South African space? You're saying that bonds do add value and the 60-40 is still alive. Well, we're very bullish domestic bonds. But as bullish as we are domestic bonds, we are actually bearish global bonds. We've had next to no exposure to, to global bonds. Rising interest rates you know, is, is not the environment to be in bonds uh, and rising inflation. I think the, the difference between the South African bonds and the global bonds is that uh, our inflation is, is a bit lower and the yield you're getting to pay for taking that risk is a lot higher. So we have different views on, 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 from a local and a global perspective. We certainly uh, would not want to have a lot of our, our clients' money in offshore bonds. It might be still early in the year, but the temperature is already rising and the build-up towards the ANC's elective conference that is taking place in December. Well, it appears that Lindivia Susulu has already thrown her hat in the ring with her public attack on the judges and the constitution. Well, to help us unpack what it all means and what is likely to happen and whether President Cyril Ramaphosa can hang on to his position... And if this is going to be the ruling party's swan song, I have Sri Pillay in the business virtual studio. He's the director of Africa of the highly respected international political analysts, the Eurasia Group. Well, thanks for joining us, Sri. Thanks for having me, Linda. Pleasure to talk to you today. Okay, what are the early indications? So I think uh, the early indications are that President Cyril Ramaphosa's position as president of the ANC is relatively safe. Um, I think there's a realization within the party that, uh, you know, across both factions of the ANC, the RET faction and, you know, the CR17, uh, now 22 faction, that Ramaphosa's popularity uh, is greater than that of his party across South Africa, um, making it an asset for the ANC heading into the 2024 general election. So I think if you take that view and look forward to the 2024 election, it's something that uh, the ANC needs to rely on as a party, given the reputational damage it suffered uh, due to state capture, poor service delivery, as well as that of the July unrest, which occurred in South Africa. So I think what we're going to see this elective conference is an elective conference that is characterized by intense competition for the remaining top five positions in the party, um, as well as a high level of contestation for the deputy president position in the ANC as well as that of Secretary General. I think also, you know, uh, you quite correctly said Ndwe Sisulu's been quick out the starting blocks in uh, 2021. And I think this is something that's going to be a, a theme throughout this year, is further attacks on uh, state institutions, primarily by those uh, who are looking to be the leader of the RIT faction within the ANC. And I think, you know, it would be quite symbolic 
that, you know, these attacks would generally come through op-ed pieces in newspapers, as we've seen over the years. So I think that will be a, a running theme throughout uh, 2022 as we build up to the conference. Well, you talked about attacks, and it could be worse than just newspaper advertisement or verbal attacks. That faction showed what they are capable of when they threw Jacob Zuma in jail. Couldn't it lead to violence? I think, uh, you know, there's a couple of factors that do raise the risk of political violence in South Africa. Primarily, of course, would be the findings from the Zondo Commission interstate capture and the publication of the reports, which will likely implicate former President Jacob Zuma, as well as his inner circle, you know, in uh, state capture, and which could be used as a narrative by the RIT faction within the party to claim that there's a broader political conspiracy against them. And the destabilizing effect of this really comes in when you look at the potential removal of political elites at a local, provincial, and national government level through the state capture report's findings. And also, I think it's important to note that a number of the implicated persons in this report, you know, span a large range of government uh, state-owned enterprises, as well as more local bodies uh, that will likely come to the fore. And I think this really now does depend on whether or not President Cyril Ramaphosa decides to act on the outcomes of the report, which I think he will. It's just a question of how willing he is to implement the full ambit of recommendations that uh, Acting Chief Justice uh, Zondo has come out with. Well, I'm going to talk more about Zondo later, but one thing that I noticed, I was at the previous conference, there was a lot of horse trading when we were on the floor and there were rumors of vote buying. It's going to be rough. If you say your prediction is that Ramaphosa will pull through, couldn't that destabilize it, vote buying, what goes on in the branches? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, uh, you know, one thing that's always been uh, a factor in ANC elective conferences is a high level of secrecy over, you know, the uh, elective process, as it were. And that's changed substantially, uh, you know, over the years of Polokwane and now Nazareth. And I think this year you're going to see likely it will be a more open contest with uh, politicians and uh, high-ranking government officials that are party members looking to stake their claim quite publicly. Uh, as we saw with uh, Minister of Justice Ronald Lamola uh, on the January the 8th uh, at the ANC's uh, celebrations coming out and saying that he'd be willing to uh, run for the deputy president position. You know, this is something that previously you wouldn't really have seen also from someone so young in the ANC. And I think, you know, the level of ambition of younger ANC leaders to try and depose some of the older generation within the party and to take their rightful place uh, among senior leadership positions in the party is something else that will be a theme this year. Um, Mabuza was really surprising because it was clearly a deal that was made. What do you think his position is? He's been missing in Russia. He seems to be ceremonial. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you, you can't count uh, David Mabuza out at any time. He's someone, uh, you know, they call him the cat for a reason. He has more than nine political lives, that's for sure. Uh, and I think, you know, ahead of this conference, while many people are writing him off as, uh, you know, having burnt his political capital and, you know, not really having been uh, somebody that's uh, been visible enough in the role as deputy president. I think uh, for President Ramaphosa, you know, David Mabuza 
played a role at the, uh, at the last conference, which ultimately delivered him the ANC presidency. This time around, I think, you know, given his health issues and uh, also, you know, changes within the uh, political architecture at a provincial level in the Northwest will count against him. I think that there will be a new deputy president of the party. Uh, what happens to David Mabuza is a bit of a guessing game at this moment in terms of um, whether he retains a top six position in the party. And I think that's something that will be a watch point. Who are the other characters we should watch? What about Paul Machadile? Definitely. Um, so I think other people to watch, uh, you know, Paul Machadile is somebody that I think has aspirations for high office uh, within the party. I don't think you can count him out. I also think President Ramaphosa will have to pay back some of the goodwill that has been shown to him at provincial branches in the country where members of his faction have been fighting, you know, to retain power for him within the NEC as well. So I think, you know, there are a number of um, of younger ministers as well as provincial allies that the president will have to back on his slate. And I think Zalani Sol is somebody that should definitely watch as well, as well as Minister Kubai is somebody I think that, you know, has uh, shown a great you know, deal of loyalty to the president. I think uh, the president's also shown that uh, she's a trusted pair of hands in his eyes. And then, you know, you also have other characters uh, within government, like David Masondo, deputy minister, young, ambitious, somebody I think that has aspirations, but also within the party is quite trusted. So I think these are just a few of the names that are definitely ones to watch. What are people like Ace Mahashule going to do? So I think as far as uh, Ace Mahashule goes and, you know, the RET camp are concerned, I think uh, the ANC step-aside resolution when it was implemented did sideline a lot of the faction. And, you know, it really changed the power dynamics within the ANC. And I think it portrayed the right message to South Africans that the ANC was trying to clean up its act. And it was a bold move by President Ramaphosa and one that is uh, being attacked again this year, with some calling for the step-aside resolution to be abolished. I think that the President Ramaphosa has made it quite uh, clear at the January 8th statement that he is trying to instill a sense of discipline within the party and trying to really push forward uh, a sense of renewal and change in the organization. And I think people like Mahashule, as well as Zandile Kumere, I think there are a number of political heavyweights that have been sidelined and that won't play a larger role at the ANC party. So you seem to be confident that President Cyril Ramaphosa will act on the Zondo Commission report. What action will he take? Because the NPA seems to be almost incapable of putting anybody in jail. Yeah, I think the NPA is a big concern, you know, and I think the loss of Hermani Pernier to that institution definitely is something that, you know, weakened it. I think that the one proposition of having a special court set up to deal with state capture prosecutions uh, is something to watch uh, because I think that could really fast track the process of justice, which is really what South Africans want to see, I think. It's not just about politicking. I think for the average South African, the, the question has been, you know, why haven't we seen justice for what's exactly. going on in the country? And I think that's really the bigger issue here that our 
Ramaphosa needs to address. I think, you know, there's a number of issues that uh, Acting Chief Justice Sondor raised in part one of his report. And I have no doubt that uh, part two will be as scintillating as part one. But the broad-based, you know, cleanup of South African procurement is something that has been an issue in the country for more than a decade. And I think, you know, this provides an opportunity for the president to really try and shut down patronage networks in the country. This in combination with something like the Political Party Funding Act, which has played quite a dramatic role in curtailing uh, some of the illicit financing of political parties in South Africa, could really have a long-term effect on governance and transparency in the country. And I think these are much bigger issues that go beyond state capture that could play a real long-term role in cleaning up South African politics and enhancing transparency. So you are writing from the perspective of an international political analyst, although you're a South African. What would the international community like to see? They would obviously like Ramaphosa to continue. Yes, I think uh, they would like to see Ramaphosa continue. I think uh, as a president, uh, he's been someone that's been very business friendly, encouraging investment in the country. I think what they would really like to see is an acceleration of his reform agenda. I think it's been hamstrung by a number of factors. Most importantly, I think, would be the inability of uh, government departments in South Africa to work together on different initiatives, which is why you see something like Operation Vulindlela having such an impact. And the centralization of power within Ramaphosa's presidency has been a continuous theme over the past two years, where you've seen powers usurped from certain line ministries into the presidency to really, to really drive change. And I think, you know, should Ramaphosa win a second term, which is likely, I think people would like to see him double down on his reform agenda, more aggressively tackle the ease of doing business in the country, cutting red tape, as well as shrinking the size of government to deal with real problematic issues like the public sector wage bill, which pose long-term risk to the country. I think his bid to clean up state-owned enterprises has gone well thus far. But there again, I think the pace of change uh, is what people would really like to see quicker. You know, the partial privatization of state-owned enterprises in South Africa was a marked change in position for the African National Congress as well as for government. And the sale of SAA was a landmark moment in the country. I think, you know, that model being implemented at other state-owned enterprises where you see the private sector and international investors become more involved in taking these assets off the South African government's books, thereby improving their ability to maintain debt consolidation efforts, um, you know, would would bode well for the uh, uh, international community as as bondholders and as investors in the country. Well, is this going to be the ANC's last big conference? Things are not looking too good for them. It's failed to control the violent rioting, you know, after the arrest, it badly in the municipal election and has had difficulty in paying its staff. Is this its swan song? I think that's a very valid question. You know, I think the party's election results in the local government elections were definitely a wake-up call for the ANC. But I will say that I think there was something that we expected. I think the chronic levels of poor service delivery in South Africa for such a long period of time have eroded public confidence in the ruling party's ability to deliver. 
And, you know, yes, there are a host of contributing factors to this, but ultimately from a governance viewpoint, I think that the big issue that needs to be dealt with the ANC's behalf is partly the deployment of ANC cadres to local, national and provincial government, but also the skill of those uh, cadres that are deployed. And I think, you know, looking at it from an international investor viewpoint, what you want mm. to really see is a more technocratic, you know, civil service being formed. And I think yeah. that really is going to be a big challenge for uh, President Ramaphosa going forward is how do you shape a government to create a technocratic civil service that has the skills that are necessary to deal with the major challenges that you have in South Africa of high unemployment and low development. Thank you, Sri Pillai from the Eurasia Group. Thanks for speaking to us. I'm Linda Fontelberg for Biz News. A few years ago, Biz News challenged its readers to submit stories about their dream for South Africa. There was one resident from Mossel Bay who responded with his dream of fixing South Africa's education system. He's Peter Stienekamp, who soon realized that you can't fix tertiary education without doing something about primary and secondary education. So he shifted his focus to that and opened a school for all ages in Mossel Bay. It is based on the principles of self-teaching of Indian education scientist Sugata Mitra, known for his TED Talks on the Granny Cloud. Peter, we love to hear that we can inspire. Tell us about the Novel Academy and the ideas behind it. It's quite a journey for me. I started with a school about three years ago. We only had uh, three children, but then I soon realized my model is not working. So I stopped it and I rethought it and I uh, pondered and I talked to people and uh, a trigger came in about October last year when uh, I happened to speak to uh, Wessel Kruger who is on the governing body of uh, high school here in uh, Mossel Bay and he told me that they've got a big problem with education. At that time they already had 200 uh, applicants for the new intake of grade 8 for which they do not have uh, space in the school. So I decided, well, there's uh, opportunity now, and not only an opportunity, but it's a, a real need to provide education in Mossel Bay. So you have children of all ages? What we do is not primary or secondary. It's a school that we mix the different ages, and um, we really want to start the kids at age four, but at the moment, I'm not ready to take the small kiddies. So at the moment, I'm, uh, a requirement is that they must read and write and do basic uh, arithmetic. But we want to expand it so that we take in the kids from age four. And then when they write their equivalent of the metric, because we follow the Cambridge system, and the Cambridge system is not South African metric, but it's accepted by the South African universities. And it's, of course, the Cambridge system, it's uh, arguably the best uh, school system in the world. So um, accepted in South Africa, but all over the world. So you're preparing them for a life or education or a career almost anywhere? Absolutely. So how was your school received by the local community? I really want a school of 200 uh, children. And uh, I advertised and uh, 
At the moment, we have nine children. And uh, ach, just an hour ago, we got a uh, woman called me and they said uh, wanting to bring their two uh, daughters uh, on Monday. So then we will be 11. But it's organic growth. At the moment, I really can't cope with 200 kids because the model is just not right. We need to develop it. Maybe I must just start at the beginning. Okay. In terms of my vision, after my original response to Best News uh, uh, Dream Challenge, I thought about it. My argument is that the mainstream school system in the world is not fit for purpose. It's uh, focused on children passing exams and passing tests and doing uh, age-level performance in terms of formal curriculum and maths and so on. And um, I don't think that is a good preparation for the world. It's necessary, but um, it's not sufficient. There's many other things that you need to do to prepare yourself for the world. I mean, today, when you finish school, it's stuff out there. And the knowledge is changing all the time. So if you have past exams, in very few years after that, that knowledge is going to be obsolete in any case. In the past, when I was young, I mean, it was easy. If you finish school, you get a job and you progress in your job. But today, it's it's totally different. You've got to be uh, prepared to to take on challenges. Nobody's going to tell you what to do. And our school system is still based on teaching the children. Now you go to chapter eight and you do this uh, uh, work and uh, prepare yourself for the exams. So what we try to do is to um, let them own their own education. We help them, we assist them, but it's really up to them uh, to do the work. And also what is different from now from compared to uh, when I was young is there's so much very, very good stuff out there on the internet completely free. So uh, uh, previously you had to have a teacher and the teacher presented the material. He had the knowledge and he passed on the knowledge, but that's not required anymore. So you can have very good uh, education provided the kids are motivated to look for it, provided they can do it. And in addition to that, in South Africa, the education system is broken too. There are good schools compared to the the mainstream uh, criteria, but in the townships and rural areas, it's really very little proper education is taking place there. So uh, if you take those two uh, factors, I thought that with the fact that the resources are available, you don't need good teachers, you need to manage the environment, then it's possible to have very good education that doesn't cost a lot of money. So if you manage the environment, you manage the emotions properly, and then you can uh, get them to look for the information. And that's also where the age mixing comes in. And that is where the group that I have at the moment with the nine children, it's um, uh, smallest one is a little girl of nine. And then you've got a number of children in between. The oldest girl is 17. And the older children, they help the the younger children. And that's also part of why you don't need the expensive teacher. 
Our model is not yet working properly. One of the reasons why the previous model failed is you need to get the children to be uh, disciplined. And if you just take people from the street, they are not disciplined. So at the moment, what we do, we enforce discipline, very soft discipline, and we, we sort of guide them to, uh, to help themselves with the idea that if they are working well, we're going to relax with uh, taking away less enforced discipline and getting them to, to use a self-discipline. Well, hopefully it will work from there. Peter, do you think South African pupils and their parents are ready for this kind of model? I'm pretty sure that once we demonstrate that we have a good system, that there's enough parents that realize their children are not getting a good education and uh, we offer a good education for a very low cost, I'm pretty confident that we're going to get enough kids. Let me give you an example. A woman uh, or a mother uh, contacted me and said her son failed uh, standard eight last year at uh, high school year, and uh, she's looking for an alternative for him because obviously the mainstream school doesn't work for uh, for her child. Okay, so they came for an interview and uh, accepted him. He was with us the first day when we opened, the 12th of January, and um The next day, her mother contacted me, said, no, he's not coming anymore. Uh, she didn't give any reasons, and I called her, but she didn't reply. Okay, well, it wasn't too bad. I mean, things do happen. But then the next day, the child called me. He said he made a mistake. He said that he thought that the high school will take him again after having failed the standard eight. He went to the high school and they're not accepting him. And now he realizes he's not going to get an education. He's with us again and he's very, very motivated. He's working very hard and uh, I think he's going to be one of our success stories. So there's something that drives him and that's basically what you need, these kids driving themselves. So what is your vision eventually to have a school with 200 children, how many teachers or volunteers? Very, very good question. Very good question. I don't really want to have teachers. Hmm. So uh, there's, a, there's a guy in India called uh, Sugata Mitra. I've looked uh, a lot of what he's done. And uh, he proved really that you can leave kids alone, but he calls it the grandmother model. So uh, what he's is arranging is for, oh, it's typically grandmothers. It is people that without any uh, education experience, without any um, teaching experience, but just looking at the emotional needs of the children, not really their motivational needs, it's really the support. It's a sort of looking over their shoulder and asking them, show me what you are doing. Then they enthusiastically tell her, uh, their grandmother would respond with, oh, I don't understand anything, but it looks great. Just carry on like that. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it's amazing the volunteers that you get because I've uh, went to Mossel Bay, went to Facebook groups and asked for volunteers. And there's many, many people willing to, to volunteer to work on a no-cost basis. And, okay, you ask what we're going to do. So we want to prove the, the, the low-cost school at Mossel Bay 
And if that works, we want to roll it out at the, to the townships and rural areas. Is this approved by the education authorities? Are they okay with this model? Uh, <laughs> yes, they are okay with this model. Uh, I have to register a private school and you can register a private school. There's rules and regulations. My daughter is a teacher at the Cambridge School in Johannesburg. There are many Cambridge schools in, in South Africa. The school where she's teaching uh, mathematics, the school fees are uh, 11,000 rand per month per child. And I want to do it at 1,000 rand per month. Is that what you charge? 1,000 rand per month per child? That is the school fees, yes. And that's everything in included except for your final Cambridge external examination fees. So what are you doing? It's a, it's a private school that you established. It's based on the Cambridge system. You don't have any teachers involved. It's more like mentoring from volunteers and you. And um, you're planning to expand this model in South Africa. You've got it. That is exactly my message. Well, thank you so much. It's a lovely story. And we love that the business prompted this. Thank you for speaking to us and good luck with getting more pupils. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak about it because I'd really love to uh, speak about it to anybody wanting to listen. Well, that's all we've got for you this evening. Thank you for joining the Business Team this Power Hour. We'll be back again on Thursday. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.